Welcome to this episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, dedicate myself solemnly to revealing how the world really works. Thank you very much for being part of the show, and thanks for all that you do in helping to promote it, helping to grow it, and that's good for everybody. The uh, show is designed for happy warriors and for wannabe happy warriors, happy warriors in training, folks who are hoping to become happy warriors. That's who it's for. And this past week, like uh, every week, happily, I receive lots and lots of letters. And yes, I do read every single one. And as many of you have discovered, I actually do respond to uh, quite a few of them. Well, one of them uh, this week I thought you might find as interesting as I did. And um, I'm going to leave out his name, okay, Uh, just because... Um, well, you'll see the, they may be, there may be a sensitivity there. But when I say this show's designed for happy warriors, uh, this guy is definitely a warrior and he certainly sounds happy. So he says, uh, hi, Rabbi, my name is blank. I'm named for the Bible character. Yeah, clearly. I don't have a particular question, Rabbi. More, I just would like to give you some new pins for your map. I am a frogman in the Danish Navy. It's like your Coast Guard and Navy SEALs combined. I'm a member of a six-man elite rapid response search and rescue team based in, and this is a very, very small town, not actually in, in, uh, in Denmark, so I'm going to leave that out. Our team designation is, and uh, well, Um, Can I say that? No, I better not say that either. Our team designation uh, refers to something in Norse mythology, and it's a frozen wasteland with no reprieve from ice and wind. Uh, We are known locally as the knuckleheads. We winter here, but due to the difficult nature of our job here, we all return to our respective homes for summertime break. While we are working the radio in our garage cycles, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast is on, so I know you like to know who is listening and where. I thought I would take a moment since things are slowing down, and we are anticipating going home uh, to tell you where that is and maybe add to your map if you can find us. And yes, I, I actually did find it. Um, our fearless leader's name is uh, so-and-so, and he resides in Copenhagen, Denmark, working on earning medals and promotions. Our surgeon's name, each you know, each unit has a medical guy. Our surgeon's name is Benjamin Yasser, on loan from the Israel Defense Force for seven years now. And he lives in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he does nothing but go to the beach and nightclubs, as far as I can tell. Well, let's, let's hope there's a bit more to his life than that. Uh, the next guy resides in so-and-so Sweden, where he teaches martial arts. Uh, another guy is from uh, Iceland originally. 
He resides there with Ghana, who is originally from Copenhagen, where they run a very unsuccessful commercial fishing venture in the venture in the summertime. Last year, they didn't make enough money to pay for the beer they drank. I live in Greenland, where I work on repairs for churches and houses in the summertime. I don't make any money, so I shouldn't mock my teammates. Blessings to all of you at the American Alliance of Jews and Christians from us knuckleheads. And there they are. They are very far north. And, um, uh, well, it's it's just wonderful to know that we have listeners in such very interesting places. And we also had uh, several letters from people in different countries in Africa. And uh, I won't read them right now because I've got a lot that uh, I feel the need to impart to you and um, and work through with you. So uh, th- spend a moment um, dwelling on your status as somebody who is not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life and somebody who is not somebody who wants to be massaged with warm butter, but a happy warrior focused on your five Fs. And there really is not a single one of us has any excuse for ever being bored or ever not having anything to do because the job of advancing your five F's is so challenging that you literally have to be a warrior to be doing it all the time. And being a happy warrior makes it all a pleasure. We we revel in the challenge. And so family, right? Everybody has work to do with their family. Maybe you're not Maybe you don't have a. Maybe you're not building a family. You haven't built a family yet, or maybe you, you. So it's time to do that. What if you've built one and everyone's off on their own, and now you're alone again? Well, that's a challenge in and of itself. That's a huge challenge. So uh, you you've you've raised a family, and now you're by yourself. And w- sometimes it works out that you you don't have a close connection with your family. So you've got to grapple with loneliness and you have to find a substitute family. That's right. It means you've got to find people uh, into whose life you can bring advantage, benefit, goodness, and blessing. But uh, wherever you are, how about if you, somebody hasn't started your family yet, right? Well, I guess if you're, uh, if you're below the age of 23, then it's acceptable. But um, ideally, I, you know, under, under good conditions where you and uh, your intended both know what you're doing and your foundation is firmly set and your feet are firmly on your foundation, uh, yeah, marry early. Of course. I mean, why ever not? As, again, as long as there's a full understanding, a full understanding that uh, you learn to love your spouse, but you don't marry someone because you're impassioned with them or you're infatuated with them or you're in love with them. You marry somebody, obviously, where there is an attraction, obviously, but the uh, attraction complements a similarity of outlook, a shared commitment to the same system of values, yeah, why would you put off marriage? It it just makes so little sense. And that is, uh, if it's something that you're not 
comfortable with or you don't know uh, what I could possibly be referring to, write to me. Go to my website. Let me know. And, uh, and then I'll do a show on why marrying young is a huge advantage. But uh, certainly your family, your, your family F is certainly something that everybody can be functioning on. Your finance F, well, I, I don't even have to spend any time talking about that. Uh, it's a given that you can improve your finances. Number two, that you should that's right. You should not um, sit back and say, "Well, I'm, you know, it's my fate to be a, a person in in financial struggles and uh, challenges." I just have to accept it and, and leave it as it. No, you really not only don't you have to, you shouldn't. You are wrong to do that because it means that you are reconciling yourself and resigning yourself to not adding to the sum total of human benefit in your community, your neighborhood, your society. And so, yes, you should be trying to improve your finances. You can improve your finances. And um, and again, we have certainly plenty material, at least for getting you started on that in, in our holistic warrior and uh, our, um, our uh, resources at the website, rabbidanielappin.com. Um, faith. As, as I've, I've said before, um, you know, atheism is not the result of a, uh, of a mind. It's not the result of thoughtfulness and of brain work. Atheism in general is a product of the will. Um, it's, it's that we are all somewhat blinded by our own selfish instincts, which, which essentially yearn for freedom. And that's really uh, what produces an atheistic outlook, this deep uh, resolve to free oneself from a, a system of morality which constrains, restricts, and limits the things that I want to feel inside of me that I'm free to do. Even if I don't do them all, I don't want the feeling of not being able to. And out of that flows uh, the the whole concept of atheism and uh, its fellow travelers. And then when one ties that in to the spread of socialism, spreading now more rapidly than any other belief system, as I've, I discussed in the show last week, um, it provides people who want to rid themselves of, let's say, godly, <laughs> godly oversight, right? The, uh, the nightmare vision of God peering over your shoulder, watching what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking. And yeah, I understand you want to get rid of that. And so atheism and socialism go hand in hand. And that way you, you feel that you're a good person because you're trying to improve the world, and um, and uh, you're doing it in a way that doesn't require you personally to accept any restraints whatsoever on your lively instincts and whatever they are. And so the hard thing to, to understand is that uh, faith is an asset in much of what we do in life. Uh, faith is obviously an asset in in marriage. It's a uh, it's a big asset in the area of health, sp- particularly mental health and tranquility. The ridding oneself of uh, anxiety and depression. Uh, faith's hugely important in those areas, 
and um, it's also very important in the financial area. And as I've mentioned many times, people sometimes say, well, I wish I could have faith. Or, um, you know, somebody said to me, that, well, you're a man of faith, but... So I said, look, um, Dr. So-and-so, before we go any further, let's just deal with what you've just said. Okay? And I said to him, please don't think that I am a man of faith in the same way that I'm a man of baldness. These things just happen, you know. Uh, I lost my hair. I found faith, maybe in the other order. Uh, Maybe one has nothing to do with the other. No, it wasn't like that. I sought it out. and It was very challenging and very difficult. And uh, so please don't dismiss me in a patronizing kind of way. Um, You're a man of faith because then we don't have anything to converse about. Uh, You have to understand that uh, faith is something you work at, just like fitness is something you work at, right? You don't suddenly have, oh, oh, look, you're lucky. I wish I was like you. I wish I was as fit as you. No, that that you know you're not fit because it just happened. You're fit because you really work at it. And so, uh, so yeah, family, finances, faith, and friendships. Right? Who who can't use another friend or two or three or five or twenty? And there are ways to increase the number of friends you have in your life. This is a good thing to do. And again, sometimes people will say to me, oh, uh, I'm an introvert. I'm just not a people person, you know, so I'm afraid, Rabbi Lappin, you're going to have to find another way to help me because the advice of increasing the number of friends, that's not going to work. Yes, it will work. And you have to get out of that mindset. It's exactly the same as the other things I'm talking about. You need friends. They are an important part of your life. It interacts with all of your other four Fs. And uh, the idea that you are an introvert, so stop it. Just stop doing that and uh, and start devoting a certain amount of time every week to social, to friend, to friend nurturing. You just have to do that. Yes, you, you know, I, I accept you're not naturally extroverted. You're not the life and soul of the party. But uh, that's not what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about making sure that your number of friends in your life goes up, not down. And that's normally what happens as time goes by. You lose touch with people. And yes, the friends you were friends with from uh, grade school, that's wonderful. I mean, to be friends with somebody and, you know, the years and 10 years go by, 20 years, 30 years go by, and you're still friends with people, That uh, that's wonderful. And not many people have it. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> pardon me. It's certainly, if you travel as so many people do, uh, you know, you, you, you find yourself living in a different place from where you grew up. It's so easy to to lose touch with these people, and, and one does. You know, you can't retain and maintain friendships just with emails. It doesn't work. And that's one of the reasons that um, I have been such a critic of the governmental lockdown strategies of this uh this year-long dem panic that we've been seeing so much of already. And I've been a critic because 
uh, it's all very well that epidemiologists uh, say you have to isolate and lock down and mask your face and have nothing to do with other people. They can say what they like. Uh, they are specialists. The mistake was that uh, President Trump, unfortunately, followed that. And I'm not sure he had much of a choice, the way the mood was going, but uh, he followed it. And certainly at the present time, and I'm recording this in the spring of 2021, uh, Governor Harris is certainly uh, maintaining that and foolishly criticizing and more than criticizing, castigating governors of states that are um, loosening up the lockdown mandates, uh, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, um, Mississippi, a few others, and um, and uh, President Harris is attacking them and criticizing them, um, and and I, you know, I mean, obviously, I think she's wrong. The fact is that people do need social contact, and the price of of this is yet to be paid. And in one area alone, interestingly enough. Um, there has been a dramatic impact on America's fertility rate. Now, people joked at the beginning, well, you know, we're going to be locked down at home and people are going to spend time with their spouses and, well, we'll just see, you know, there's going to be a birth boom. No, uh, there isn't. And uh, so much so that there is actually already a depreciating of 20-year bonds that's an amazing thing on the basis of the figures that are coming out about the United States fertility. Why would this impact a 20-year bond? Well, think about it a second. 20-year uh, bonds are uh, saying, well, what is going to be happening in 20 years' time? How are factories going to be doing? And the answer is that since there will be fewer, many fewer than expected customers for the products of those factories, they're not going to be doing well at all. And uh, the market, made up of millions of separate investors, all making their own calculations, have arrived at a at a fairly consistent and unified conclusion, and that is that a diminishing of population, as we're seeing happening in the United States and, of course, in European countries, it's an old story, other than relatively healthy nations like Hungary and Poland. But elsewhere, it's not looking good at all. And so, uh, yeah, um, I just this past week saw that um, that twenty-year bonds were were declining in popularity and strength, um, based entirely on investors deciding, hey, you know what, there are going to be fewer people, you know, fewer people coming into the market in twenty years' time than we expected, and so that has to be taken into account as well. And sure enough, um, it it actually is. So, uh, so uh, friendships and um, and then finally, of course, fitness. Uh, it's never it's never too late to try and do something. Now, sometimes it's too late to you know you may have abused your body for so long, and uh, and so you may actually never be able to get back to quite to where you'd like to. But you can certainly be better off than you are now. So there's all kinds of uh, things that we can be doing for our five Fs, our families, our finances, our friendships, our faith, and our fitness. And, um, and yeah, uh, these are all very, very important. And, and, and certainly for many people, 
many people dismiss faith and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll leave that one out because I'm, I'm not a person of faith. Um, that's like saying I'll leave out friendship because I'm not a people person. And I'll leave out fitness because I'm not really a bodily kind of person. And I'll uh, leave out finances because, you know, I'm not really a money kind of person. I'm much better than that. I'm holier than that. I'm pious. I'm virtuous. I don't care about money. And, um, and so there it is. So it's very easy to dismiss each one of these five Fs, uh, even though people tend to do it most with faith. And I'd strongly recommend that just privately by yourself, no big announcements, no embarrassing disclosures, no conversations with friends or family, just by yourself, I would strongly recommend that you start trying to open a conversation with the Creator. All right? It's, it's, you know, it's a perfectly normal, perfectly natural sort of thing for people to do. Admittedly, uh, more than half a century of aggressive, rampant secularism in much of the world uh, makes, it, uh, makes it difficult, makes it some people even feel embarrassed and awkward about it. But the fact is, people really can do something about it and should. So um, I want to tell you um, a little bit about Bitcoin uh, not because I'm such an expert on Bitcoin and not because I'm going to share with you my own investment strategies, nothing like that at all. But I thought I could give you some tools that would allow you to make up your mind about uh, Bitcoin and whether you want to get involved in this new world of cryptocurrency uh, or not. And uh, that's really all that uh, I want to do. And in order to do that, if I may, I'm going to start off with a commodity called aluminum. Okay, aluminum. Uh, in England, we used to call it aluminium. Aluminium. In South Africa, we used to call it aluminium. Um, but in America, it's aluminum. And why do I have to talk about aluminum? Well, let's first of all talk about what is aluminum used for. Well, I think what people mostly say right away is airplanes, right? Uh, they build aircraft largely out of aluminum alloys. Uh, there's a good deal more of um, plastic composite material going in as well, but uh, still essentially it's airplanes. Power lines, a lot of the power lines that carry electricity around the country are made of aluminum, and there are reasons for that. Um, construction, aluminum is used very much in buildings and construction. Uh, take a look at window frames. Next time you have a chance to look at the window frame, mostly aluminum. Uh, you find in electronics, you find it heavily in uh, appliances, household and industrial. Um, you'll find it in space industry. And, of course, in shipping, and a great deal of aluminum is used in ships and boats. Now, aluminum, um, at about, uh, it costs about $2,000 a ton. How much is a ton of aluminum? Well, if you take a look at your coffee table, and I'm guessing, you know, average coffee table size, not teeny-weeny and not giant, but a sort of average coffee table size. And you now imagine it to be solid, a solid block of aluminum 
in other words, not made out of aluminum, but the the entire volume enclosed by the coffee table and its legs and the floor. If if there was if you replaced your coffee table with an aluminum block about the same size, that would be about a ton of aluminum, and that would cost about two thousand dollars. Now, about a thousand of that goes to the cost of electricity to make it. How do you make electricity? How do you make uh, aluminum? Pardon me. Well, you start off with bauxite ore, and then you extract alumina from that, which is a sort of oxide of aluminum with oxygen stuck in it. And then you use an electric furnace to heat it up, and using certain types of electrodes, the oxygen is removed, and what's left is allowed to flow off into molds, and it becomes aluminum ingots, which are then shipped off to whatever customers and uh, whatever customers need them. Now, America used to be the biggest producer and consumer of aluminum, right? And this was all the way up to uh, the 1950s. We were the world's biggest producers and consumers of aluminum. Please bear with me um, right now, <clears throat> because uh, uh, I know that uh, there are probably <laughs> some of you who are saying, oh, really, a podcast about aluminum? I, you know, who's interested in that? Um, I think you will be. I really do, because... Part of being a happy warrior is being alert to the world around you and being interested in the world around you, all parts of the world around you. Music, not every kind of music, but some kinds of music, um, what's what's happening in, in different fields, what's going on. Yeah, you want to know about that. You want to you, you want to be a human being who knows the world in which he lives or she. And, and as I've just described, aluminum is a really important product, and so you want to know about it. But what has this got to do with cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and real money? Well, that's what I'm trying to explain. So uh, please hold in there for a moment. I'll try my best to make it as interesting as possible. So there you got America in the middle of the 20th century, not surprisingly, um, you know, leader of the free world, our dollar has just been made the reserve currency of the world. So other sovereign nations very often start storing up their money in dollars. We really are on top of the world. And uh, obviously, yeah, we, we produce and use the most aluminum. Uh, we are now in 2021. How many aluminum smelters are there in the United States? Um, as far as I can find, uh, 14 of them left them, you know, maybe 15, maybe 12, but, uh, and it depends when you're listening to this, but many, many, many of them have shut down and gone many of them. And now we've got 14 aluminum smelters. Um, the average production of American smelters is 250,000 tons a year. So 250,000 blocks of aluminum, uh, about the size I described, and uh, we got 14 of them. Now, why am I stressing the number 14? Well, because I want to tell you how many China has. 
Remember how many we have now? Come on, 14. I told you that already. 14 in America. You want to know how many China has? Um, China has 120 aluminum smelters. Their average production is double the United States. Theirs is 500,000 tons a year. So America has 14, each one producing on average 250,000 tons, a quarter million. And China has 120, eight or nine times as many smelters as America. And each one produces on an average half a million tons. Uh, it, it's it's quite something, is it not? So um, Russia, by the way, Russia uh, produces three times the amount of aluminum that America does. So this is not good news for the United States of America. Um, you know, in terms of a real indicator, you know, people say, "Oh, the Mary." You listen to politicians. America's best days are yet ahead. That's what politicians now. It would be nice if that were true, and it would be nice if they could give us something optimistic to go on. It would be nice if they could tell me why it doesn't matter that China is producing double the amount of, uh, no, considerably more than double. They have um, eight or nine times the number of smelters, each one producing double the amount that ours, the, the America's does on average. And so uh, I'd love a politician to tell me, oh, that doesn't matter. No, it. sorry, it actually does matter. And um, now it starts getting, remember, I, I said it's going to get interesting. It is going to get interesting now. And that is that, um, so it turns out if you look at the world, different countries, production of aluminum, um, it turns out that America uh, makes about a quarter of the amount of aluminum every year that Russia makes, and a whole lot less than China makes. And who are our neighbors? In other words, what other countries produce about the same amount of aluminum as America? Norway and Iceland. That's right, Norway and Iceland. What? Iceland is a big producer of aluminum? Yes. And I wonder if you know why. I, I should play, um, you know, 20 seconds of music here to give you an opportunity to think just for a half a moment, um, why? Why would a tiny country like Iceland be producing so much aluminum? What are they doing with it? Well, I'll give you a clue. They're shipping it out. And anyway, I understand that uh, Russia has bauxite ore, so they make aluminum. China has bauxite ore, they make aluminum. America has plenty reserves of bauxite ore. Uh, and we make just about the same amount of aluminum as Iceland. Does Iceland have bauxite ore? No. So where do they get it from? They import it. So what is going on? Well, I'll tell you. Remember I told you all those closed aluminum smelters in the United States of America? Hundreds of thousands of jobs gone, by the way. And they used to be good jobs. Um, typically, uh, the uh, salary 
the pay for an aluminum smelter worker in the state of Washington, which is what I happen to know, was 1.4 times higher than the state average. It was it was good job working in a smelter, but those jobs have gone because the aluminum companies that used to run smelters in the United States of America, well, here's what they do, my friends, and this is just a glimpse into the wonderful world of international trade. They ship the bauxite ore in huge freighters from the United States all the way to Iceland. And then in Iceland, there are big factories that are smelters, and they smelt the bauxite ore and the alumina, and they cast aluminum ingots, and then guess what? They ship those back. So why would all this be going on? And you are probably beginning to gain a little glimpse of insight into why it pays to ship bauxite all the way to Iceland and then to ship the finished aluminum all the way back so factories in America can have aluminum rather than manufacturing the aluminum in the United States of America. What's the explanation for that? Well, the explanation for that is the cost of electricity. Again, you know that I go back to early 1960s, right? For convenience, I say 1962, but you can say 63, you can say 61. Uh, There are a lot of things that happened around that period, and that was the point at which America's star began to sink in the heavens instead of to continue rising as it had been doing for um, so many years. Now, Going back to 1962, um, the cost of electricity in California was two cents a kilowatt hour. Now, um, I would like to, again, if I'm not presuming too much, and and I know, look, Susan Lappin tells me, when you start getting technical, you're going to lose the women. Is she right about that? Or do I simply have a higher opinion of my lady listeners than Susan does? Is that possible or is she right? She says, as soon as you get technical, your lady listeners turn off. And I would be truly dismayed. I would be dismal. I would be disappointed. I would be depressed to believe and to know that when I talk about kilowatt hours of electricity, lady listeners turn off this podcast. I, 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 I can't accept that. But again, uh, if it's true, I need to know that, right? Because I cherish my listenership, each and every one of you. I love hearing from you. And uh, if indeed, when I discuss technical topics, um, you lady listeners, roll your eyes, shrug your shoulders, and go and do something else. Uh, please tell me, won't you? Just go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there's, you know, like on every website, there's an About Us. And you go to the About Us, and then in the About Us, you can you can write Contact Us. And then you click on that, and you get to write me a note, and I'll get it. And I'll get a chance to see it. 
and um, and I will try and answer if um, if if that's at all possible. Well, I will answer if it's possible. I will always try to. And uh, while while you're there, by the way, you might also want to make sure that you have become a happy warrior. How do you become a happy warrior? You just ask for my free ebook called The Holistic You. It's a very, very important concept. I started touching on it at the start of this show today, and, um, and I explain it a lot more, which is how each of your five Fs interacts with the others, and that uh, we have to work on all of them at the same time in exactly the same way that when we uh, want to maintain our car, we have to maintain the tires and the engine and the ignition system and the braking system and the steering system and the suspension system. You can't simply say, you know what, I'm not that interested in electricity, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pay attention to my car's electrical system. And, and you know what, I, uh, I'm not crazy about transmissions, so I'm not going to worry about it. It doesn't work like that. Because the car is a wonderful machine of separate systems, all of which work in interface with one another. Well, that's what your life is. That's what your life is like. Think about it. Your family, your finances, your friendships, your faith, your fitness. These are all important parts of your life. And it doesn't work to say, you know what, right now I'm under financial stress. All I can think about is finances. So I'm not paying attention to the fitness area. I'm not paying attention to the uh, faith area. It doesn't work that way. And if you become a happy warrior by uh, asking for my free ebook, The Holistic You, you will begin to get a clearer sense of how every aspect ties together. And so um, I now am going to uh, talk about a kilowatt. Uh, the basic unit is a watt. A thousand of them is a kilowatt. And it's, it's, it's mostly what we talk about. What's a kilowatt? Um, a kilowatt is a measure of how fat the electrical pipe is running to any particular appliance you have. That's the best, although the electrical cord is always the same, I... I think this gives you um, a good way of picturing what uh, wattage is. So if you read on that heater you have, okay, folks in the, uh, in the southern hemisphere, you'll be looking at your air conditioner. Uh, but right now in the northern hemisphere, most people are still looking at their heaters, heater or air conditioner. You look at your heater and you look at the um, information plate usually be underneath it or near where the power cord goes in and it'll usually say uh, that the consumption is three kilowatts it uses about three thousand watts and that means that it has a fairly fat pipe carrying electricity into it not really but it means that there's a lot of electricity pouring into it all the time now compare that with a light bulb i you know, I still like the incandescent light bulbs, which um, 
I would never tell you I'd do an illegal thing like importing them from another country where you can still get them. I would never, and I would never encourage you to do such a thing. But And you can't do it from Amazon, by the way. If you go to Amazon in a country that still has incandescent light bulbs, uh, they will not ship it to you. How do I know that? None of your business. And um, I still like incandescent light bulbs. Um, incandescent light bulb, I use 100-watt bulbs. So what does that mean? means that the pipe carrying the electrical energy to the light bulb is much smaller, thinner, than the pipe carrying electricity to the heater. Because the heater is using 3,000 watts or 3 kilowatts. My uh, electrical light is using 100. And so it's 1 30th of the power consumption of the heater. Right? Now, how does the electrical company bill you? They bill you for a unit based called a kilowatt hour, meaning you are running electricity to a 1,000 watt appliance like your hairdryer, and you're doing that for an hour. And that's a kilowatt hour. So if you run your heater that I described earlier for an hour, it's going to be, since it uses three kilowatts on a steady basis, and you used it for an hour, it's three kilowatt hours. If you leave it on for eight hours overnight, it's going to be 24 kilowatt hours. Does that make sense? Um, my light bulb is using 100 watts, and 100 watts. If I leave it on for 10 hours, I will have used a, a one kilowatt hour. Right? 10 hours times 100 watts is 1,000 watts or one kilowatt hour so uh, now that you know what a kilowatt hour is we can talk about costs back in california back in 1962 and i'm talking about california but there are other countries other states in the, in the united states that are just just as bad connecticut is another one and there are several states which are somewhat better but the bottom line I'm going to show you is how the cost of power in the United States has climbed and skyrocketed in the last few decades from 1962. California in 1962, a kilowatt hour cost two cents, right? So uh, to run your heater for three hours cost you six cents. Got it? Three kilowatts for um, for uh, an hour. Um three uh, and one kilowatt hours two cents three kilowatt hours is um six cents so that's what it would cost you now electricity in california is 20 cents per kilowatt hour 10 times as much now some of that is due to inflation there's no question about it uh, but a whole lot of it is due to that's right renewable energy solar electricity wind power did you know that you are subsidizing wind power did you know that every time somebody buys a tesla car they get seven thousand dollars of your money did you know that oh yeah uh, because we are subsidizing electricity why for political reasons that's why and so, not surprisingly, the bill, your electricity bill keeps going up. You're now paying 20 cents a kilowatt hour. So that little heater you uh, put on while you're um, on your computer 
trying to uh, get some work done and you put on a heater for a few hours well it's three kilowatts and you leave it on for three hours so that's let's call it 10 kilowatts and uh, it's two 20 cents a kilowatt hour so that's going to be two dollars cost you two dollars to keep the heater on in your little room uh, while you were working for three hours four hours whatever it was so uh, all of that should be clear right so um, uh, you use your heater for one hour it's 60 cents in california now um, in um, in certain states louisiana arkansas washington those are the three lowest states for the cost of electricity of the country um, it is uh, eight cents a kilowatt hour so two and a half times more in california than in washington arkansas and louisiana and um why is it lower and i'm not going to go into louisiana and arkansas because i don't know them as well as i know the state of washington but in the state of washington why is electricity only eight cents a kilowatt hour by the way it used to be one cent uh going back less than it used to be uh, less than a cent but um it's now eight cents which compared to california is still not too bad and the reason is because of two names grand Coulee and bonneville those are two huge um hydroelectric dams uh, built in the late 30s they started up in about 1939 1940 and uh, they start churning out huge amounts of electricity well guess what the next thing that happens is well aluminum corporation of america alcoa oh when i was telling you uses of aluminum i never even told you aluminum foil for cooking in your kitchen and uh, i mean it's it's an absolute staple right for me I, whatever I need to bake, if Susan isn't home, I slap it in aluminum foil, stick it in the oven, 400 degrees. That's my go-to number. I don't even know uh, what different numbers are used for at uh, for different things. I don't even know how to find out. And so if I'm baking a potato, which I'm fond of doing, into aluminum foil, into the oven, 400 degrees, and that's it. And now I don't wrap it in aluminum foil. I put it on aluminum foil. I don't wrap it because the aluminum foil keeps in the moisture. And I like the baked potato to sort of pop open, to, to become dry. And uh, all right, I think enough of this. And so uh, in um, Washington, there's all this great power coming out of the electricity, coming out of Grand Coulee Dam and Bonneville Dam. By the way, if, if you live in the state of Washington or you pass through or, or you're traveling and you have the opportunity, I would go out of my way to see the Grand Coulee Dam if you possibly can. It's sort of off the beaten track. So, not, you know, the Hoover Dam near Las Vegas, people go to Vegas, they go to Hoover Dam. It's only a few minutes drive. Grand Coulee's a little harder, but it's well worth it. And while you're there, you can stop in and visit Idaho as well. It's not so far. And you can have a really nice trip. These are my travel suggestions for this. Uh, uh, you know, weather's getting nicer now. You can get on the road. And uh, so the aluminum, remember I told you that aluminum costs about $2,000 for that coffee table of yours, uh, $2,000 a ton. About a 1000 of that, about half of it, is the cost of electricity. So, uh, not surprisingly, uh, aluminum smelters started setting up in Washington. 
because they were able to use the power very economically, the power from Grand Coulee and Bonneville, and so aluminum got manufactured there. And um, obviously with Boeing aircraft based in Seattle, having the aluminum around the corner uh, didn't hurt. So all in all, this was all very good for the state of Washington. Everything was great. And, um, and then the price of electricity started climbing. It started climbing because of regulation and taxation and inflation. And the cost of electricity, very high indeed. And climbing, still. Well, it didn't take long for the aluminum manufacturers to realize they got to get out of California. They got to get out of Washington, even though it's less than in other states. But there was a better solution. What's the better solution? Well, the electricity is so expensive and you need so much of it to make aluminum that the aluminum companies said, simple, let's ship the bauxite ore to places where the uh, power is cheap and then we'll make the aluminum and then we'll ship it back again. Now, Iceland has a lot of electricity, much more than they need. Why? Well, it's a small little country. That's why they don't need much. Why? But why they got so much electricity? Hydra, they got melting glaciers. And um, not having been as uh, foolishly handicapped by environmental regulation in Iceland, they built the dams. And California and Washington are demolishing the dams. So Iceland has a lot of surplus electricity. And so aluminum smelters went to Iceland and said, how much will you sell us electricity for? And they, Iceland named a ridiculously low figure, and aluminum manufacturers locked in a long-term contract, and they built their smelters in Iceland. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how it works. Now, uh, remember I told you that America has 14 aluminum smelters, but China has 120 of them. Now, um, have you read about big dams being built in China? Uh, is it called the Seven Gorges Dam? I believe it's the Seven Gorges Dam or the Gorges Dam. One of the, I think it is the biggest hydroelectric dam in the world. Um, where is it located? Well, funnily enough, not too far from where China's deposits of bauxite are. Are you beginning to see the picture? And so that hydroelectric power very economically produced, is um, now going to power um, 120 different aluminum smelters located nearby, and they're going to be turning out hundreds of thousands of tons of aluminum that will continue driving the Chinese economic miracle. So uh, China needs aluminum, right? They're building a navy, they're building an air force, there's rapid industrialization. They're probably using as much aluminum as they can make, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're building even more smelters. But um, so Chinese aluminum is made very economically, and Icelandic aluminum is made very economically. See? So uh, <clears throat> it's it's really... It, it explains this weird sight 
if you you know if you had the ability to watch shipping movements and it's fascinating to do that by the way uh, there are websites that let you do it and you'll see ships of uh, bauxite ore traveling to iceland emptying them and then coming back filled up with ingots of cast aluminum <laughs> it's it's incredible it's really really amazing to watch so um that is what is happening um about um five uh, percent of all electricity generated in in the united states still goes to making aluminum it's a very very heavy on power use in a way you could look at an aluminum ingot and call it stored electricity now it's not a battery because you can't pull it out but you could look at an aluminum ingot, or if you decide to get a solid aluminum coffee table, because you feel like owning a ton of aluminum, um, you could look at that aluminum and say, well, that aluminum represents you know, a whole lot of electricity, because the component bauxite ore is responsible for half the cost, and the component electricity is responsible for the other half of the cost. I'm putting that a bit clumsily. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. But uh, what I am uh, trying to paint a picture for you of is just how much electricity is represented in that bar of aluminum. Okay. So that's why I said you could sort of think about it as uh, cost electricity, stored up electricity. Not that you can get it out again, but that represents that bar of aluminum represents a huge amount of electricity that was used in its production all right now the reason i'm going to tell you all of that is because i'm going to shock you i think when i tell you how much electricity it costs to mine bitcoins mine bitcoins out of the ground no this is just a word they use. They picked up on the word mining because, you know, you mine for gold out of the ground and now we're going to mine for, for Bitcoin. So, but what I want to show you now, and I really want you to understand this and get a very clear picture of it, is that in the same way that a bar of aluminum represents a huge infusion of electricity, I want you to know that a Bitcoin represents similarly a huge infusion of electricity, okay? Now, I know that this is all very, very strange, but we're going to get it right. And uh, please hang in here with me just a little bit longer while we try and nail this down. So now I'm, I'm going to tell you about Bitcoin. But in order to be able to tell you about Bitcoin, I've got to tell you about money in general. And those of you who have already studied money with me, you've studied your F of finance, perhaps you've read my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. Perhaps you've read my other book, Business Secrets from the Bible. You might well have taken my 10-part audio course, The Financial Prosperity Collection. And if you don't know about that, do me a favor, obviously, and do you a favor, even more importantly, by going to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, 
go to the store section, look up Financial Prosperity Collection, read about it, and then for heaven's sake, you know, if if you're in the situation of, of knowing that you could be doing better financially than you are, knowing that this is one of the F's that needs work in your life, please make the investment. Just go ahead and do it, would you? Just do it and move onwards, move upwards. Um, I, I'm here to help you, and uh, in so doing, as part of the wonderful world of divinely ordered economic exchange, you help me and I help you, and we are both happier for it at the end of the day. So um, it's called the Financial Prosperity Collection, and if you've already done that, then you probably already understand the rather uh, provocative statement I make when I say that money is spiritual, not physical. Now, what I mean by that is not that money is virtuous and moral and pious and religious. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm simply saying that money, by its nature, is a spiritual commodity, not a physical commodity. Um, somebody gave me a hammer as a gift, Paul. And I, uh, I, I thank you so much, Paul. He gave me a beautifully engraved hammer. And uh, I, I cherish it and I use it. <laughs> it came in the mail and I had some people um, in my office when it arrived. The mail came in and I saw this heavy and odd-looking envelope. I opened it and people uh, in the meeting with me saw me pull out a hammer and I've never seen eyes bug out of heads quite like that in an ordinary business meeting. But um, th my hammer, this hammer of mine, it's not my only hammer, but it's my favorite hammer, uh, is a physical object. What I mean by that is that this hammer resides in my toolbox, or sometimes I will have it out of the toolbox because I'm actually busy using it. Now, if for one reason or another you decide that you want to harm me, you want to deprive me of the use of my hammer. You cannot do it without coming into physical proximity with the hammer. You're going to have to come to my office and you're going to have to find the hammer. You're going to have to pick it up and walk away with it. And I got to tell you that um, trying that, you have to do that at your own risk because i got two friends who are going to try and stop you doing it. One's Mr. Smith and the other one is Mr. Wesson. So it's not a good idea. But should you decide that you want to deprive me of the use of my hammer, well, that you can only do if you come right to the lion's lair and you grab hold of the hammer and you walk off with it. But let's say you want to, God forbid, you want to deprive somebody of his reputation which happens a lot these days. Well, would you have to go and actually put your hands on his reputation as you have to put your hands on my hammer? Of course not. You just you just broadcast whatever you want to broadcast, and people start thinking less and less of the person that you talk about. And that's because a reputation is spiritual and a hammer is physical. And now my question to you, and if I had the music, I'd play it for another 10 seconds. Is money spiritual or physical? All right. Well, let's test. Let's go back and watch what happened way back. Well, actually, before that, before I even go way back, um, your money is being 
harmed. You are being deprived of the use of your money every week, every month. You know how? Because the government, by printing too much money, is lowering the value of your money. And so um, uh, uh, if you if you bought something for $100 in 1962 in the United States of America, let's say you bought something for $100. Today, in 2021, that same thing will cost you $800. There's been a huge drop in the value of your money. It's, it's important to understand. So, so right there, you can see that money must be spiritual because people have deprived you of the use of a lot of your money without anybody coming anywhere near you. So there's one way of seeing that money is spiritual. How about gold? Well, you know, gold is, is money, and that, that's a lot safer. And if, if you're holding gold, well, then uh, people would, you know, because gold is physical, right? You'd have to, people would have to come and grab your gold. Well, please don't think that's impossible. What am I talking about? We have to take ourselves back, if you don't mind. Have to take ourselves back a little bit and um, look at 1933. During his presidential campaign, Franklin Delano Roosevelt promised to lower government spending and therefore lower taxes and balance the budget. And uh, everybody voted for him. He got into office. But once he was in office, well, then he did exactly the opposite of what he had said. And uh, he raised taxes. He spent and spent and spent, and um, basically making the Democratic Party uh, a, a powerhouse that would be hard to ever dislodge from uh, the uh, prominence it had achieved. Um, he spent so much money and um, created jobs, and again, government jobs, right? I spoke earlier about dams like Bonneville and, uh, and um, a Grand Coulee Dam, and these were, in fact, uh, government projects, right? So, yes, it did. It, it, it gave jobs to a lot of guys who built those amazing dams, but, um, but it, was, it was government um, money. He obviously had to raise taxes, uh, in order to be able to pay for the huge increase in spending. And the size of government started swelling and growing out of control. All of this takes money. And he kept on raising taxes. And this was meant to stimulate the economy, and everything was going to move out of the depths of the economic depression that had begun with the 1929 stock market crash. And remember, this is only a few years later, right? We're talking about uh, late 1933, beginning in 1934. So talking about, you know, uh, three, four, five years from the depression, it was very, very much still a real thing. And um, so he um he realized that he needed more money than could be gained by taxes <laughs> the taxes were as bad as they could get and how do you get more money the answer is simple you print it and um it's very immoral and uh, very very wrong because every time you print more money than has been warranted by the economic creativity of the people using that money, 
uh, you are lowering the value of every single dollar bill. Remember I told you about uh, money being spiritual, and one of the proofs is that it can be taken from you without anybody coming into your house or going into your safety deposit box or touching your wallet. They can still take your money. That's right, just by printing more of it, because it is a spiritual thing. So uh, back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1934, he's spending like a drunken sailor, trying to get more money from taxes, and eventually realizes he's got to print more money. There's a problem. Back in 1914, the Federal Reserve Act was created, which limited the amount of money that could be printed by the government. And because there has been a general deterioration in public morality, back in 1914, there were politicians who responsibly, I want to almost call them statesmen, who responsibly said, let's make sure that future governments cannot print as much as they want, because the temptation for a government to just print money is so strong, it's almost irresistible. So we'll, we'll help them. We'll make it illegal. Uh, the way we'll do that is we'll pass this law, 1914, that every single currency, every all Federal Reserve notes, which is just another word for paper currency, has to be backed by 40% gold that is owned by the federal government. So what this means is that for every dollar printed, the government needed 40 cents worth of gold stored in Fort Knox. And uh, if they were going to print more money, they needed to have more gold in reserve. Now, this is a far cry from 100% gold, right, where you could exchange your dollar bill for gold, but that was long gone already. At this point, they locked it at 40%. This meant that with the, that by the that once Roosevelt had printed as much money as he could on this forty percent rule, in other words, all the gold owned by the federal by the government by the federal government was now accounted for by the dollars that were printed. And so, what does he do now? Um, he does away with that act and um, eliminates it. That's all. (laughs) So now he's no longer restricted in the amount of money he can print. Prints the money, people very quickly sense the drop in the value of the dollar, and they start um, keeping their assets in gold. And um, in the up till that point, you could keep your gold in the bank right you could keep so much in currency so much in bank in in gold form people were rushing to the bank and withdrawing their gold because they said you know this is not good uh, we we want gold we don't want currency and they were converting as much of their currency as they could into gold because uh, they knew that the gold would would hold its value better than what the president roosevelt was doing to the currency and so, uh, by the way, there are pictures of this period you can find, and um, sometimes they are mislabeled as people trying to get their money out of the bank because of a rush on the money and loss of confidence in the money. It's actually, um, they are actually in line because of gold. What part of gold? Well, let me tell you. Um, he uh, was worried 
that people were trying to keep their money in gold. That meant they would be increasingly more aware and more alarmed about his printing of the money. So he um, made a, uh, he passed a law that made it illegal to hoard or, uh, or, or, or keep at home gold or silver coin or bullion or currency. You can't do that. And he actually closed all the banks from March the 6th to March the 9th in 1934 um, in order to give a chance for all this to straighten itself out as he passed this new law. Um, by April the 5th, less than a month later, it had not, his actions had not been sufficient to slow down the runs on banks and the drainage of gold out of the system where everybody took gold because they didn't any longer trust the money that he, the president was stealing from them by printing too much of it. So, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I said 
it is not just by a, a thug with a with a pistol, but by government action. And it's important to get this clear, because when you understand the danger of cash, its possibility of being taken away from you, and the reality that it is being taken away from you every day by inflation, then you realize. Now, one of the to sort of jump a, a moment, people are well, you know, uh, Bitcoin is not a currency; it's 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 this commodity its value has been climbing skyrocketing up yeah uh, this is true the value of bitcoin has been climbing and that's not to say it can't drop it it has been climbing but in parallel with that you have to know that the value of your money is dropping so the money you have sitting in the bank right you've got a thousand dollars sitting in a bank account and you think to yourself well it's just you know sort of money just in case i need it. it's my it's my it's savings it's making you know a one percent interest that's not keeping up with its loss it's still losing value so paper currency is losing value and could lose a whole lot more no question and has in the past as we saw in this horrible horrible period of the beginning of roosevelt's presidency and um and by the way, it's a lot like using, uh, you know, public health, public health. I don't doubt for a moment that uh, President um, Harris is going to be uh, doing a number of things under the guise of public health. When you've got things like this and you've got emergency legislation, and because they never, I mean, this is one of the great things President Trump was going to do, was um, make the federal government go back through old unused laws and delete them get rid of them and you see the danger that the trading with the enemy act of 1917 the fact that it was sitting there in the books allowed president roosevelt to uh, use that to make gold ownership illegal right it's insane what does that have to do with trading with the enemy what's that got to do with treason what's that got to do with national security there's no war in 1934 but he gets away with that, and um, and it's also you know it's 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 in order to to help people and it's to uh, uh, there were wonderful words they put out for all of this to sort of uh, bamboozle the population that all of this is a good president trying to help people and get them things and give them money so people people let it happen now um, that's not the end of the story. At that period, we're talking about foreign countries, okay? The U.S. dollar hadn't yet been made the official reserve currency of the world. That happened right after World War II in a conference called the Bretton Woods Conference. But, um, but many countries did keep money in dollars, and they were able to ask America to switch the dollars for gold at any time they wanted at a price of $32 an ounce, now, what's great about this is that it meant that the the value of the dollar was fixed. You see, you follow what I mean? The value of the dollar was now $32 per the ounce of gold. And that also then began to restrict President Roosevelt's ability to continue inflating the currency, which he had no intention of stopping. It's not that he wanted to inflate the currency. He would have preferred not to, but he wanted to print the money. Basically, he wanted limitless money, 
And uh, by making more and more and more people dependent upon the government, he was going to make sure that they would vote for him always. That was the entire concept. Well, now, with paper currency separated from gold, there was no longer uh, that link. President Roosevelt was able to continue increasing the federal deficit by issuing bonds in exchange for paper money. He used the paper money raised through government bond issues to pay for the many different government programs that vastly increased the size of government and increased the number of Americans who became dependent on government as part of his New Deal program. This was not only disastrous for the country, my friends, but it was disastrous for every one of those people who took the bait and willingly surrendered their freedom to become government dependents. And that was all part of what he and his minions were planning to do. Well, his hope of ending the Great Depression, that didn't quite materialize. Because of what he had done to the money, the stock market collapsed by about 90% in 1937. Uh, Unemployment soared. It was a huge mess. Now, what what happened was that uh, time went by and uh, the country... Uh, successive governments still wanted even more um, uh, ability to to uh, print currency and devalue the currency in that way. And um, as we started uh, printing more and more and more money, foreign countries who were using the dollar as a reserve currency by 1945, um, they suddenly started noticing 15, 20 years later, by 1971, because of realizing that the value of the dollar is being dramatically undermined, obviously countries that are holding billions of dollars as part of their reserves in our dollar currency, they think to themselves, we don't need this. The value of our money is dropping every day. So they um, all started standing in line to America and saying, hey, you know what? We'd rather have our reserves in gold than currency. Huge problem. Gold starts to pour out of the government stockpile. And uh, meanwhile, the government's deficit keeps going up and the federal budget keeps going up. There's also a very bad trade imbalance with other countries. Basically, America is in serious decline at this point. <clears throat> And so finally, and this is a Republican president, my friend, so please, you know, be aware. It's 9 p.m. on August the 15th, 1971. That night, uh, President Nixon gets on television and uh, talks to America. And he's saying that he was taking the dollar off the gold standard. And that meant that um, now not only couldn't people own gold, not only was there no linkage between the uh, value of a dollar and the price of an ounce of gold, but other countries had to accept, in the same way as American citizens had no choice but to accept uh, what we call the fiat money, the paper money from the United States Mint, uh, other countries had no choice either. 
And so what Roosevelt did for citizens, Nixon did for international, for other sovereign nations. And, um, and that was it. And now, with nobody owning gold, people didn't even have a sense of how bad the inflation was. See, if you actually own some gold and you look at the gold price and you watch that the cost of gold is going up and up and up in your dollars, not so much in Deutschmarks, not so much in German currency, not so much in Japanese currency, but in American currency, the price of gold is going up. Well, there's another way of looking at that, right? That the price of gold, gold is gold, it is what it is. And the value of the dollars dropping so much that it takes more of them to buy the same amount of gold. Well, when people don't own gold, they're much less conscious of that process. And so it suited the government to not uh, have people gold aware. Uh, finally, six, what, six years later, it was about 1977, President Gerald Ford uh, restored uh, the legality of ownership of gold. But of course, the gold standard itself lost forever. So as a result of that, the deficits continued to mount every year, and the debt continued to go up. So I'll tell you what the debt is now. Um, and the, the trouble with it is the number is so meaningless. The number is so huge that it's hard to even comprehend it. Uh, the national debt is now $28 trillion. So, again, just to clarify what a trillion is, right? Um, we all know what a million dollars is. Now, if you took a thousand million, that becomes a billion. And if you took a thousand billion, that becomes a trillion. So that's what a trillion is. A billion billion. <laughs> that's right. Uh, no, it's not a billion billion. Um a million is six zeros. A um, uh, a billion is nine zeros, and a trillion is twelve zeros. Yes, it's a it's a million million. That's right. A, a, not a million billion. It's a million million mm. It's a million million. That's so. It's a million piles of a million dollars. That's a trillion dollars, and we got twenty eight. And you know how big the number a million is, right? It's a thousand thousands. So we're talking about a lot of money. That's the debt. How to, how to put it in terms that we can all understand. Let's say that uh, if it had to be paid off, if it had to be paid off tomorrow, the government would be knocking on your door asking you for about a quarter of a million dollars. That's right. That's your share of it. Um, who's going to have to pay it off? Well, your children, somebody. It's going to have to happen. It's not going to magically disappear. The reason it's not going to magically disappear is because um, it's too big compared to the gross domestic product of the country. It's just, it's never been this size. Now, if you want to know what the real debt is, 28 trillion is the official debt. What is the real debt in the United States? Probably closer to, um, I'd say, more than 100 trillion. What's that made up of? Federal obligations to Social Security, Medicare, pension liabilities, all kinds of guaranteed figures that the federal government has guaranteed and will end up paying. Why do I say that? Because any time that uh, a, an agency has a bigger agency behind it, they will spend all their money. 
knowing that the bigger agency will then fund them. If you've ever heard the rule that uh, agencies spend all their money before the end of the budget year because otherwise they'll get less next year, this is how it works. So uh, $28 trillion is unthinkable enough. $100 trillion, it's breathtaking. There's nothing to talk about. Um, $28 trillion, if you added the total economies of China, Japan, Germany, and India— Right. If I asked you what are the, the biggest economies in the world, wouldn't you have said China, Japan, Germany, and India? Well, $28 trillion is bigger than those economies. So it's much bigger, right? And so you realize that our gross domestic product, which is what would be required to pay it back, well, it's dwarfed. The, the, the debt is too big. How about let's looking at it from the point of view of interest. How much is the interest a day? Okay, the interest on the debt is $800 million a day. 800, so it's nearly a billion dollars a day. So that means uh, about $300 billion a year is needed just to service the debt. Look, any of you who have uh, mistakenly and horribly let your credit card balances rise and you know especially in tough times people people do it right it's you know you put it on your credit card it's it's you know it's better than losing something bigger so your credit card debt balance rises and then you suddenly discover that so much of your income has to go every month to paying minimum payments just the minimum debt just the interest that you can't manage. You get stifled. It's terrible. Well, that's where we are now. $800 million a day in interest on the national debt. And President Harris just raised it again, just made it go way up. And it's going to continue going up. That's what's happening. So uh, why, why is this important? Because if you have a real understanding of what the danger of of currency is and of cash is, then you, I think, can start seeing the value or or you can start seeing something like Bitcoin as a little bit more um, real, a little bit um, something that you say to yourself, is Bitcoin really risky? I mean, is it a real danger to take paper money and put it into Bitcoin? Well, once I explain the basics of paper money, so you really have a chance now to ask yourself, what are you doing with your money? And are you aware of how much it's losing every year significantly, right? It's literally like taking a certain amount of money and tearing it up and flushing it down the toilet. That's the equivalent of owning currency, of owning cash. So, um, you know, obviously you have to do something with it. Stocks, investments, all of these things are things you have to consider and think about. But um, Bitcoin may be one of those things. Maybe. Now, uh, a quick deeper dive into Bitcoin. In the same way that uh, Iceland has become uh, astonishingly and unexpectedly a major supplier of uh, aluminum, you won't be shocked to hear that Iceland has become a major place for producing Bitcoin. <laughs> That's right. 
you can actually see pictures of warehouses that are thrown up quickly in Iceland to to house the uh, thousands and thousands of computers. Now, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of computers running, and you need a huge amount of air conditioning to keep them cool. All that electricity is a lot of electricity. As a matter of fact, my friends, the maintenance, the, the producing of Bitcoin actually uses more electricity than the whole country of Switzerland uses. It uses more electricity than the whole country of Argentina uses. That's right. So in the same way that uh, a bar of aluminum is like a representative of a lot of electricity, uh, so is a Bitcoin. And uh, again, not, not, I'm not going to do how many of you I'm sure know more about Bitcoin than I do, but the little I know is that uh, started in the beginning of 2009. So it's, it's recent. It's only 11 years. And, but there have been a huge number of transactions in that time. People have, have traded in Bitcoin. People have bought things and sold things. People have bought Bitcoin and sold Bitcoin. By the way, in all that time, not a single error. Right? In millions of transactions, not a single error in that period of time. In the same time, our ordinary paper-based banking system um, estimates between 1% and 5% mistakes and errors. That's how reliable this computerized system that you've heard called the blockchain technology. I'm not going to discuss it, but uh, it's a very, very sophisticated uh, computing, way beyond my understanding. It's all intriguing because it's shrouded in mystery in the sense that nobody knows exactly who it was who came up with this and wrote the algorithms and created the program. But there's some very, very clever things about it. And one of them is that um, it, um, it, it sets up a system whereby bitcoins are created by the solving of mathematical problems that can only be solved by many, many, many computers. And the system is designed in such a way so as that as there are more and more computers mining Bitcoin, the complexity of the problem goes up. And so a Bitcoin is produced uh, roughly every 10 seconds, excuse me, 10 minutes on average, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. But uh, it's it, the number of computers involved will vary, but the results won't, which is the problems will be solved. So bitcoins come into existence uh, about every 10 minutes, something like that. And uh, the you might say, well, then, you know, what's going to happen to the value? The, the thing is, the number of bitcoins is capped at 21 million bitcoins, and that'll be another few years before that's reached. Um, at that point, you know, does the value of it climb even higher because of scarcity? Or who knows, by that time, people may be offered onto something else. There's another cryptocurrency, Ethereum, which doesn't have an upper limit. So who's right? Which is the better way to go? I don't know the answer to that, but it needs some thinking about. And I haven't, I haven't given it the time um, to analyze it carefully, but I know the principles by means of which to do this analysis, and now I think so do you. And, um, and that way you will be able to figure out for your own interests what's best for you. Although it's uh, so new, it's, it's 12 years old, uh, Bitcoin is, um, is long past the point where 
um, you know, Johnny sitting in his mother's basement with his computer is churning out Bitcoin. Long past that point. Nobody can do that anymore. The level of power needed is beyond the reach of any person. What you can do is you can pool up with a whole lot of other people and you can sort of form a Bitcoin mining syndicate. You can do that. But um, again, the power uh, constraints are huge power requirements are huge um, also the equipment you know the idea of using your own computer's central processing unit the cpu forget about it long gone um, then for a long period um, much stronger processes found in graphic processing cards were used and that served for a little while but now uh, it's gone to application specific circuitry where computers are built for no purpose other than mining Bitcoin, and uh, they are located because the electricity is such a huge factor, just like for aluminum, they are situated uh, in places where the electricity is cheap, Iceland being notable among it. So Iceland has these uh, huge uh, computer centers where uh, tens of thousands of computers are whirring away and the cooling fans are whirring away. People who've been there say it sounds like standing next to an airplane engine running. Uh, there's so much noise from all, and you can imagine all the heat generated. And so all the cooling that has to, the cooling equipment has to operate. And all of this is producing Bitcoin. But so cleverly is the algorithm written that not only is it producing Bitcoin, but it's also handling all the bookkeeping for the entire system. And so problems in ordinary currency, <clears throat> like counterfeiting, right? Um, you try and deal with it by having the Secret Service prosecute people who counterfeit. Uh, banks try and solve the problem of people uh, using a check twice, you know, by just keeping very accurate records. And of course, Bitcoin <clears throat> has, has completely solved that problem in that... Um, the, the Bitcoin in your digital wallet uh, cannot be used twice. And uh, and you if you sell something for Bitcoin, again, that is reliable. You will get your Bitcoin. And, um, and that brings up just one more thing to clarify for, for any people who aren't sure of this yet. And that is you never actually hold Bitcoin in your hands because there isn't one. It doesn't look like anything. Um, and in that sense... I, I find it helpful because it serves as a very good tool to get clear into your head that money is spiritual. It's not those discs of metal that clink in your pocket, and it's not the strips of colored paper, and neither is it the orientation of iron oxide molecules in that brown magnetic strip on the back of your credit card. No, money is spiritual. It is a measure of how much you have done for other human beings. That's what it is. And so uh, having money means that you've served other human beings. And that's how money comes into being. Right? And again, in um, some of my other material, you can see it on the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Um, I give explanations. And I've, I've also done it on earlier podcasts of uh, how it is that there's more money 
available as soon as one person serves another person or when a person buys something from a company or when one company does something for another company but everything is dependent on this. now again if you if you share my outlook then the explanation is that uh, the good lord wants to stimulate connectivity between his children in exactly the same way that uh, parents who are preparing their estates and their succession plans and their wills parents often go to great lengths to figure out how can they make sure their kids don't fight how can they make sure that their kids stay close to one another and it's 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 always it's it's a challenge people worry about that and our father in heaven has the same worry he wants us to be connected with one another and to be helping one another and so he set up a system of um trading he made it so that you will eat better with less effort if you trade instead of trying to do everything yourself and that's the system of specialization which adam smith wrote about in 1776 and which the book of genesis writes about and the book of deuteronomy writes about considerably earlier the idea of specialization part of god's plan for human economic interaction because that means I need other people. If I'm a subsistence farmer and I grow my own wheat and grind my own flour and bake my own bread and and wear my own animal skins and I don't need anybody else and I don't need anyone else and I not only don't interact with any other people, but I view all other people as a, a nuisance, as a blot on the landscape. But if I specialize, then everything's different. And that is, I now pray for the welfare of the company that makes the shoes I like because I want them to stay in business and I, I I pray for the welfare of the market that I shop at because I want them to make enough of a profit to stay in business because I like shopping there and so it is that we all need one another and we all benefit from trading with one another and we all eat better with less effort as a result of trading And so by taking care of one another, by trying to supply what our neighbors and other people that we share the marketplace with, by trying to supply the things they need, uh, as a result of that, we're able to get everything we need. And this is the miracle of trade. And so the beauty of money is that that makes it possible. And that's why it is that, again, part of God's plan for human economic interaction involved currency it involved a way of transferring value um, to make sure that if um, that barter the huge limitation of barter is that i have to want what you have to give exactly at the same time that uh, you want what i have to give it's very unlikely it's very tough to barter like that and so currency makes it possible in a, in a beautiful way. And um, currency has these requirements that it, it's got to be, um, uh, you've got to be able to use it. People have to be willing to accept it. And that's a huge thing. And, and that's why it is that uh, it's all a question of trust. When the world was trusting the United States dollar, it was easy to ask everybody to make this the reserve currency because everybody trusted it. But now it's evident that not only do other nations not trust the U.S. dollar, but even U.S. citizens do not trust the U.S. dollar, and neither should they. And so um, will 
widespread trust continue to grow in cryptocurrency in general and Bitcoin in particular? That is one of the questions you have to ask yourself. And if the answer is yes, then indeed this actually does become a currency. And it wouldn't be the only time that currencies were created uh, without government. All right, when the Hanseatic League was formed in the 1300s in Northern Europe, uh, there were currencies that they were that merchants were, were were minting and producing. One of them came from a certain valley, and um, in German, a valley is called a Tal, usually spelled T H A L or T A L, and um, it's pronounced Tal. Now you know linguistically, there's very little difference in sound between a T and a D. Um, so much so that you need to have very good sound equipment to know whether a speaker is speaking into a microphone and saying t or t. The, the, the sounds come so close together. And so um, the silver coins that were minted in that area, and they were trusted because the merchant who minted them was a trusted guy. So his coins began to be began to be trusted. And um, they were called the Valley Coins, Tala Coins. And you can hear how the word dollar began to emerge from the German word for valley, Tal. A dollar that comes, something that comes from the valley is a Taler, right? Just like a Berliner is somebody that comes from Berlin. A Taler is somebody who came from that valley, Tal. And Taler eventually became dollar. And that's um, how, how that began to, uh, to happen. So uh, trust is everything. And um, if the trust will, will, will grow, uh, again, the reason governments got involved back with the Hanseatic League is that um, merchants who were minting and using the, the currency uh, realized they needed the, the the prince, they needed the government, they needed the state in order to help protect them, uh, to stop robbers, to um, to allow them to retain their assets. Obviously, the state always took a price for doing that. Taxation, absolutely. How is taxation based? On income. Why? Well, because as I just explained, how is money? How does money come into being when one person serves another person? That's what produces money, right? It, it creates wealth. The job of the government is to print currency in that direct proportion, not more for inflation, not less for deflation, exactly that amount. And uh, that's exactly what we want to see government doing. We all know government's not doing that. The government is printing too much. So it all changes and the value of the money goes down just as your money is going down every single day. And so the, um, the creation of money is where the tax takes place. How do you tax where the money is created? Well, the money is created when you pay me for something I did for you. And so therefore, I have to pay tax on that. And everybody, from the earliest times, everyone latched onto that, that um, <clears throat> it's when we work for one another, when we transact with one another, that's what creates money. And the money must be taxed, says government, at its source immediately, as soon as it comes into being. And that's the way to do it. Now, a big risk factor with, uh, with cryptocurrency. What, in other words, for how long is the government going to be willing to have a currency that doesn't need the government? 
not connected to the Federal Reserve, not connected to government in any way whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I could do a transaction with you in Bitcoin, and I, if I want to do something illegal, I could fail to report it as income, and um, all of a sudden, there's an underground economy in Bitcoin. Now, there is no way the government, if that becomes more prevalent, if Bitcoin starts receiving wider and wider acceptance and circulation, and more and more uh, vendors start accepting Bitcoin, well, then uh, how, how long can the government tolerate the possibility that people are not reporting income in Bitcoin? Something will be done. I have no idea what, but I do know that the avarice and appetite of government for money is limitless, and frighteningly, the power of government is limitless. Put those two things together, and they will find a way. If you really want to have nightmares, think about it becoming a United Nations issue. Okay, so at the moment, it's not yet a big enough problem, but it's getting there, and uh, the reason I decided to talk about uh, Bitcoin today was the news that Elon Musk of Tesla Motor Cars sunk one and a half billion dollars into Bitcoin. He bought that much Bitcoin. That's an awful lot, and that's, um, that's significant. Also, institutional investors, various funds, and I, I checked into this because I wanted to make sure, but yes, uh, there's a whole bunch of major funds with, with high rates of credibility that put some of their money in Bitcoin. They've decided, and their actuaries have decided, that the risk of Bitcoin, whatever that is, is less than the risk of holding your money in currency. So for a certain amount, they are buying Bitcoin. And as Bitcoin becomes more and more acceptable, it becomes more and more valuable. But on the negative side, it also becomes much more of a target. Even now, by the way, it is in the United States, and I think in other countries as well, it is already an internal revenue service requirement. On your tax form, you actually have to disclose your Bitcoin ownership. Now, it can't be verified or proven, but do you really want to become a criminal? In talking of criminals, a, um, a criminal in West Germany uh, was arrested, and they are trying to make him disgorge his assets, which are all in Bitcoin. And the only way to get them is with his password, which he refuses to relinquish. And that's, that is it. And that's, again, a risk, by the way. There are people who have lost money because they've forgotten or lost their Bitcoin password, their digital wallet password. And, and that's really, that is how you hold your, your currency. Now, again, I'm Jewish, and I'm painfully aware of the history of my people. And uh, many is the time over the last few hundred years that we've had to flee from a country, from a place we're at, and um, start anew somewhere else. And what, for instance, with the Nuremberg Laws in Germany in the 1930s, uh, the Nazis basically said to Jews, go, and you can't take anything. You have to leave everything behind. And all of a sudden, Jews were scrambling to try and sell their house and change, you know, and buy diamonds or gold. Well, the government knew what they were doing, and so did everyone else. And so the value of Jewish real estate plummeted, and um, Jews arrived in other countries as refugees, penniless. How nice would it have been 
to have had your money in a digital wallet, <laughs> right? You come to a new country, no problem. Just turn on your laptop and you got your money. You can pay rent, you can buy property, you can do all kinds of things. You got your Bitcoin. So very nice, no question about it. But again, I also know that government is not going to sit by and not do something about this. So these are all different things that uh, we have to weigh up. So that's that's an overview, ladies and gentlemen. It's um, I, what I've tried to do is give you enough uh, basic principles. Right, not telling you to invest or not to invest uh, that would be silly, but I've tried to give you. Um, enough insight into what is really going on there, what it really is, so as that we can each make up our own minds. But one thing I do think, and that is that it's not a time to be oblivious of it. I don't think any of us should shrug our shoulders and say, ah, this is just a passing fad. I'm not interested in it. Uh, I think that any happy warrior should at least be aware of Bitcoin and make maybe make an educated and uh, deliberate decision to not get involved in it in any way at all, or alternatively, you may decide, yes, indeed, to, to get involved in it, but uh, always from a position of at least some knowledge and understanding. And so um, wealth is produced when, at least money is created when we serve one another. Bitcoin seems to be created when people solve mathematical problems but that's not actually helping anybody that's that's simply the mechanism for the issuing of bitcoin but they are using electricity and that is helping somebody and that's why i emphasize so much the role of electricity in bitcoin showing it to be very similar to the role of electricity in a ton of aluminum in that um, the uh, the power utilities in China, in Russia, in uh, and particularly in Iceland, they've got power. This for them, this is money for nothing. The fact that Bitcoin mining outfits are paying a lot of money to Iceland is a lot of money, but it's for very cheap power, and that's what makes mining for Bitcoins profitable in Iceland. It would not be profitable to try and mine for Bitcoin in California. The California state government, after years and years and years of mismanagement, has literally made it impossible to smelt aluminum in California and impossible to mine Bitcoin in California. Also impossible to do a whole lot of other things as well. The glories and delights of far-left socialist government, obviously. Um, and so, um, yes, uh, Iceland is making money off Bitcoin, serious money. And so you could say that Bitcoin coming is coming into existence because people are doing something for other people. That is what lies at the bottom of the reality of money. And if that were not there, if Bitcoin did not take large amounts of electricity or didn't require you to do something, you know, if you know, if the inventor of Bitcoin, whom we don't we don't really know who it is, but had he said, um, <clears throat> everybody, uh, this is the way it's going to work. Um, you have to plant and nurture uh, fifty trees in a forest, and then you get a Bitcoin. That could also have worked. You know, again, if there was a way of maintaining the bookkeeping through, I mean, the blockchain technology is brilliant. 
it's wonderful. And, and I, I, I mention the word because no matter where you are, no matter what sort of happy warrior you are, you do need to know about blockchain technology. It's going to be used for more and more things. It is remarkably reliable, mainly because it doesn't depend on one set of books located on one computer or in somebody's drawer in, a, in an office, but it actually exists on millions of computers at the same time. And the, uh, the possibility of fraud is uh, as close to zero as to be meaningless. And so um, I, I think, I mean, I could tell you more about it, but I think I've been going on for quite long enough for this podcast today. But I, I think it's important. I'm sure many of you already know a lot about Bitcoin, probably more than I do. Um, but what I'm hoping is that those happy warriors who've been pushing it to the back of their minds and have been thinking, I don't have to worry about this. <laughs> you know what? I've got enough on my mind. I don't have to think about Bitcoin now. I'm hoping that uh, that for you, it is at least a little bit of a, um, uh, I wouldn't say an alarm bell, but let's say a reminder to start learning a little bit more, getting a handle on it, and then at least making a deliberate decision. Uh, yes, you know, I, I want to put um, $50 a month into Bitcoin or, you know, whatever it is. Or I don't, but at least I make a decision. Bitcoin is not part of my world for the next 12 months, whatever it is. So it's all at RabbiDanielLappin.com. And, uh, and I want to urge you, I want to make sure that, and there's no reason why, if you are a happy warrior, that you do not yet have access to the Happy Warriors website. It's uh, it's wehappywarriors.com. But uh, you can also just go to the regular rabbidaniellappin.com website. And if you just um, uh, go ahead and get yourself a free copy of um, my book, it's an ebook. You'll you'll download it right away. It's fabulous. Uh, the Holistic You. The Holistic You. That's the name of the book. And you, you'll see it easily. If you just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, even if you're going there to send me a, a letter, you'll also be able to see uh, that you can download the ebook, and uh, and that way we are able to move forward in the five Fs, which I really believe is hugely important. Right now, it's so easy to become swept up in the politics in the United States of America and in some other countries and to become uh, beset by anxiety and worry about what is President Harris going to next be doing and for how long are they going to try and preserve the damn panic and to try and keep people locked down and to keep the economy suppressed. There's so many big and disturbing and worrying things that are battling for primacy in your mind that it's really helpful to stop and say, wait a moment, all of those things are surplus. All of those worries and all of those anxieties are secondary to my five Fs. The five Fs come first. That's what I've got to focus on. So why don't I just make sure that I'm taking care of my family and my finance and my friendships and my faith and my fitness? So uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. There is also, by the way, a charming uh, video program that you can get. Um, it's called, It's done by Susan Lappin very informally. This is Susan at her natural self. She has none of the British repressiveness and, 
and um, and awkwardness that's a part of my heritage. She just goes into the kitchen and shows you how to make special Sabbath bread called challah, walks you through it. And we've actually seen a few photographs now from people who've sent pictures of the challah they have baked following Susan's directions. And uh, I can tell you that not only does it fill the house with an absolutely marvelous smell while that challah bread is baking, but uh, when you bite into it, uh, there's really quite nothing, is there? that's quite like homemade bread and special uh, sabbath bread is particularly good so you will find um, a video on uh, the rabbi daniel lappin.com that uh, will show you exactly how to do it it's, it's quite entertaining as well you certainly see a side of of susan that uh, you don't ordinarily see when she's on the television show of ancient jewish wisdom by the way we got some very charming letters lately uh, I did one of the TV shows we did uh, lately on the B-52 bomber. Again, it's just a fascinating story. Uh, this is a bomber designed in the United States to win World War II. And believe it or not, it still is an integral part of the United States Air Force. And uh, I spoke about how much I'd like to try and visit. I'd love to go inside a B-52. And I thought it's not possible, but I've received several letters from people who've given me information on where and how I could actually get into a B-52. And I am absolutely going to figure out how to do it um, once uh, I am able to get out and drive a few places, hopefully in the next uh, few months. Now, before I finish for today, uh, there's one really important announcement I have to make. A number of years ago, I wrote a book called America's Real War. A, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi insists that Judeo-Christian values are vital for this nation's survival. And it turns out that um, I must have been uh, divinely inspired because the book is more relevant today than it was when I wrote it. And uh, it's been out of print for a number of years, but because of its relevance and because so many people have been asking me uh, what is really going on in the United States of America, uh, why is socialism being driven to such an extent by so many people of Jewish ancestry? Why is it that the struggle in America in reality is not, as the left would have us believe, between people with black skin and white skin, or between people with more money and people with less money, or between men and women? Um, but it's really between people who view Judeo-Christian values as vital and, on the other side, people who view Judeo-Christian values as primitive obstructions to what they think of as progress. That's why they're progressives. And uh, obviously, there are people of many different colored skins on both sides of the divide. There are men and women on both sides of the divide. There's people with more money and less money on both sides of the divide. I also explain why uh, the word rich is totally inapplicable for human beings. It's, it's a non rich and poor are not words that even make sense if you understand what a human being really is. And so uh, people have been asking me about the book. We've reprinted it, and it's available in paperback and also ebook. And it's on special sale right now at our website. So I really want you to be aware of that. 
Um, firstly, it's a gift. It's a, it's a great gift. If you've already got a copy from years ago, then that's great. If you don't, uh, I think you kind of need one just in terms of really understanding what's going on around us. So as you really get clarity and, um, and, and you have a worldview that matches reality. So America's Real War, you can buy it in an ebook download or you can have it in paperback. And um, here's the thing that's interesting. Um, we have finally worked out a, pr a system with Amazon uh, to offer this book, print on demand, directly to several international stores. So now you can actually get America's Real War in paperback from Amazon stores Canada, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and Japan. And we've got listeners. Some of you listening right now are in Canada, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and Japan. Well, guess what? You can go to the Amazon of your country and order America's Real War right there. At any rate, uh, go to our site, go to you know the website I always give you, which is rabbidaniellappin.com, because you will find there direct, if you go to the page of America's Real War, the, the, the page of that book in the store, uh, you will find we have the direct links to those international stores, so that even if you are in different countries, you should be able to get yourself a copy of America's Real War. So please go ahead, do that, and uh, I love hearing from people who've commented on the book, people who've read it, and then write in to, uh, to talk about uh, certain applications. In some cases, things I did not think of or didn't see and that I've made notes of to incorporate one day in a new edition when we do one of those. So, um, okay, that uh, that is the important announcement that I really wanted you to all be aware of. Thanks so much for taking a look at America's Real War. That, ladies and gentlemen, is as far as we're going to be able to go today on this week's Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. I really appreciate you being part of the show. I love hearing from you. And uh, I, um, I also love the fact that so many of you are telling friends about the show. Uh, look, the, the odds are that if you find value in it, people you like probably will too. I think, I mean, that's the way I look at it. So thanks for doing that. And uh, I want to wish you, each and every one of you happy warriors, I want to wish you a great week ahead and a week of success in your relationships with your finances, your family, your friends your faith, and your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.